Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. About a third of Americans identify themselves as evangelical Christians. And for decades, Daniel Henderson was one of them. He attended evangelical Christian churches, taught history in a private Christian school through the lens of his religious beliefs, and even protested on behalf of some of the church's political causes. He struggled with difficult questions over the decades and in the early 2000s made the decision to leave the church. He lives in Washington, Iowa, and he is author of of Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. Later this hour, Robert Cargill, University of Iowa Professor of Classics and Religious Studies, will join our conversation. Dan Henderson is with me now. Hello, Dan. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Well, and pleasure to be here. Let's start with childhood. I mean, you grew up in, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Tell yeah. me a little bit about your relationship with the church when you were growing up. Well, uh, I grew up in a single-parent home. My mother was a very devoted Christian and took us to church every every Sunday we were in church. Uh, she never, it was interesting because she never drove a car till, oh, she was maybe in her 30s. So we were always taking a bus or a taxi or sometimes somebody from the church would come and pick us up. But, you know, you, you, you go, and it was a fairly conservative church. And uh, of course, you get into that habit and it just sort of is part of your lifestyle as a child, and uh, you hang on to that. But uh, yeah, I mean, our, our our life was was pretty much around the church, and every time the Billy Graham crusade came on television, we couldn't watch anything else. We had to watch, you know, Reverend Graham. And uh, so, you know, it was just part of what we did. Right, right. And I, I, I would guess a, a really important community for you and your family, especially with your mom as a single mom. Yeah, it was, and, and I found good friends, uh, good role models. Uh, so there, there were a lot of positive things about uh, going to a uh, being involved in a church, particularly when you got a single parent. You know, and of course, part of being part of the evangelical church is that you need to, at some point, declare your intentions and and make a decision to be saved. Can you tell me about your experience? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, every Sunday they would have a, a an altar call at at our church. So I, I witnessed that many, many times. And then uh, in the year, it was 1964, uh, Billy Graham came to Omaha, held a crusade. And, so you uh, had watched him on television Oh, and I'd watched him on life, television. Right? So it was like watching a celebrity, you know. Right. But uh, my mother took us there, me, her and the three boys, my uh, two brothers. And uh, at the end of the service, when he had the altar call, I went down there. And uh, I kind of was disappointed because I thought Billy Graham would probably come down to greet me, you know. But there were dozens and dozens of people. And, of course, they, were, they had counselors down there. But so I went there, uh, went forward at that crusade. And then, of course, the church, uh, they followed up. And, and I went through a baptism and, and uh, training and courses and that kind of thing. But, yeah, I guess that would have been the beginning of what you would call my evangelical experience. Right. And that became a really important part of your identity. Oh, it was. It was absolutely important. And uh, it became uh, part of who I was. And even through school, I mean, there were uh, the youth group I got deeply involved with, uh, and that was important. Um, 
and spent lots and lots of time. In fact, more time there than I did at school sometimes. Uh, but uh, we were involved in lots of different activities. It was, it was a good youth group from that standpoint. And when it was time to go to college, you decided you wanted to go to a Christian college. Yeah, actually, my older brother <clears throat> had gone to a Christian college. And I, I wanted to go, at least for the experience. I, I, hadn't, I didn't have the intention of becoming a pastor or going into the ministry, but I did want to go for a year and then determine from there what I wanted to do. And ultimately, I, I wanted to be a teacher. I kind of knew that. And uh, so I went to Christian college for a year and then ended up in a Lutheran college where I finished up a degree and, and started my teaching career. Now, you mentioned, I mean, answering that call in 1964. So here you are coming of age in the, the late 60s, the early mm-hmm, 70s, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we, you're a history teacher, so <laughs> we, <laughs> we know quite a lot about that time. I mean, that was a time of, of great turmoil, and you were a young person in the midst of it. What did it mean to be an evangelical Christian in, in 1970? Well, that's a good question, because it, means something, it meant something very different than what it means today. In 1969, 70, 71, that era, evangelicals, at least the ones I, I would hang out with, we were called Jesus people. And it was actually kind of an uh, offshoot of the hippie movement. And Christians who were considered Jesus people were considered sort of countercultural, and we looked at Jesus as kind of a revolutionary in the sense that he he was against established traditions in in his own faith, uh, and that he was calling for something pretty radical, which was to love everybody, uh, regardless. And of course, that was a time of great strife and civil rights and. So those kinds of messages really resonated with young people who, who were in the evangelical church. There was no sense at all that you had to be a conservative or that you had to be a member of the Republican Party to be an evangelical. Pretty much now, that's those two identities have kind of merged. Right, at Not, least in the white evangelical at church. At least in the white evangelical uh, tradition. Uh, but then uh, it just didn't cross my mind. And it, 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 uh, we really weren't doing what we were doing for any political reasons other than maybe anti-war and, you know, pro-civil rights. But um, uh, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of the political baggage that you, you think of today. Well, and there was a, a – a, was there? Maybe you can tell me because I don't remember. Um, <laughs> was there a stronger divide between the political sphere and the religious sphere then? Well, there was, but – Traditional churches or evangelical churches, even in that day, had a very strong uh, patriotic uh, thread, if you will. Uh, so they would have, you know, patriotic services around Fourth of July and flags posted, and but it it wasn't a sense that it it wasn't like the nationalistic Christianity that we think of today, where. People say this is a Christian nation, and God intended this to be a Christian nation, and you know, uh, all of that baggage. That I—that's what I call it. Uh, it was a sense that actually, it was a sense that you know, to be a good Christian, you want to support, you want to be supportive of the government, and obey the laws. 
at least when they're just. And so, but it wasn't any any sense in which uh, we were trying to make the government a Christian government, right. okay, uh, or or rule by Christian biblical principles. But uh, that all changed. Yeah. By 1980. Well, and let's let's talk about your personal trajectory in here, too, because um, you knew that you wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. You loved history. You wanted to be a history teacher. You chose to teach in a, a private Christian school. Mm-hmm. Tell me why that was important to you. Um, well, I actually, uh, when I came out of college, I got my first job in Omaha Public Schools. Mm-hmm. I taught just, just a year, uh, and it was a good experience. It was actually a... Uh, uh, inner city school, high school. But within that year, I, I came in contact with a Christian school in that area uh, that was looking for someone. And for me, at that time, I was thinking about history and teaching religion as well. I, I could, I, I would do that. Uh, from, but history from a Christian perspective. What does it mean to think about history from a Christian perspective? And that's really sort of the kernel of that Christian nationalist ideology, uh, we were getting those messages from people like Francis Schaeffer in those days. He's a Christian philosopher um, but and others who were talking about a Christian worldview, and it was becoming very, very tribal in setting up a dichotomy between secular, sacred, uh, the religious, non-religious, and and humanism and Christianity, and and there was a big divide that was beginning to happen, uh, and and I kind of got swallowed up in that that ideology. So, and so you, you taught history with a Christian perspective. Yes, yeah, and to do that, and what that means is history has a beginning and the end. Right? God began it in Genesis and. It ends in the book of Revelation. There's going to be resolution. Christ is coming back. And, you know, everything in between that happens in history is part of God's plan, right? So that kind of, that kind of sense gives you a very, very different interpretation of events in history yeah. uh, than looking at it from, you know, uh, just a different ideology or a different way of, of seeing so uh, you also got married in this time and, and were, again, living as part of this church community. Um, you ended up getting divorced, mm-hmm. which can be really difficult within the church community. And actually, I heard a statistic yesterday uh, about um, the fact that there are um, a high percentage of divorces with even evangelical Christian communities because people get married so young. Um, at least that was part of the uh, the, the theory that I heard. Um, and that that's a little bit of your story, right? Yeah, it is. And I, I actually met my, my wife uh, in the Christian school. She was a teacher. And not only is divorce just as common or maybe more so, there's a certain illusion, I think, that is built into things like getting married in the Christian subculture, if you will. It's, uh, it was an expectation. You know, so I, I, I met her and everybody around us said, oh, you guys are perfectly matched. It must be God's will. And it was like, well, okay, it must be God's will. And, of course, we did get married. And. Now, by the time the divorce came, we had moved to Des Moines. We had moved to another Christian school. 
and and things. We had two kids, two wonderful kids, just fantastic kids. Uh, but things began to sort of fall apart. And I remember one day sitting in my office. I was actually a principal of the school at that time. So I had progressed a little bit in the career. And I had a parent come into my office who had heard about my impending divorce. And he said, uh, God has just been speaking to me that you should resign mm-hmm. because you're really not a good role model anymore. Wow. And I, I, I looked at him. I said, well, gee, what did God's voice sound like? Can you tell me? <laughs> I, I didn't mean to be sarcastic, so sarcastic. Right, because it was that's, actually, a, that's a pretty frightening moment, I can well, imagine. It, it we're going to have to take a break. Okay. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. All right, sure. I am talking to Daniel Henderson. He is author of the new book, Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, I'm talking with Daniel Henderson. He grew up in the Evangelical Christian Church and spent decades teaching in private Christian schools, teaching history through a Christian lens. A few years ago, he left the Evangelical Church, and he's decided to share his story. He's just published Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. He lives in Washington, Iowa. He'll be at the Washington, Iowa Library as part of their Washington, Author Fest on Saturday. He'll be doing a reading at 1 p.m. He'll also be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines on November 12th at 2.30. And of course, he is with me now. And Dan, just before the break, we'd come up to kind of a pivotal moment in your life. You were the principal of a private Christian school in Des Moines. You and your wife decided to get divorced. And, and one of the one of the parents of a student at your school actually came to you and told you that you should resign because you were no longer setting a positive example for uh, kids. I'm curious, uh, going through uh, an experience that so many people have, a marriage breaking up, was that a point where you started asking questions about what was expected of you in in the evangelical church? Well, it was probably a a catalyst for that, yeah. Uh, But you know, as I reflect back on it, I had questions and doubts long before that. And I think most people in the evangelical persuasion, if they're honest with themselves, will say, yeah, I've had doubts, I've had questions, but I've never really brought them up because (laughs) they really aren't uh, very welcome within the evangelical ideology. But the, but the, the, that, event, that divorce, kind of gave me a moment in time where it was like, it's time to question this now, because everything that I've been taught about faith, about God, about family, about everything, really just kind of crumble is crumbling here, and I need to find a new way. I can't keep thinking and believing the way that I've been, because it just doesn't fit. It isn't working very well. And so I need to think this through. So I I went into a period of many years of just reading and reflecting and 
and trying to and journaling and that which is actually where this book began to originate was from some of the that early journaling that I did but it really led me into a whole different understanding of faith uh, and, and and actually led me out of religion, if you will. Uh, not necessarily out of faith, but out of religion. Uh, so, But it's been a long process. And, and I would say from the time of the divorce, which was in the 90s, by, by the year 2005, it kind of dawned on me one day, hey, I'm no longer really an evangelical. I, and and began to come out. It's like coming out. <laughs> yeah. You begin to come out, and people begin to ask questions. Well, why why are you no longer an evangelical? What what was your thought process? And so that was another impetus to begin writing. And uh, because partly I like to write anyway, but uh, it really get, there was so much that just began to pour out in terms of the change from what I was to what I was becoming in terms of my beliefs and faith. And uh, I just uh, began the writing process. And uh, then it all kind of came together this earlier this year. And uh, I'm, I may be jumping ahead of you here, but uh, let, let me stop there and see <laughs> okay. what other well, questions I, you have. I, I, I do. We were talking about your personal trajectory, but also you had mentioned that when you came of age in the in the early 1970s, there wasn't this strict political adherence that was that you felt was required within the evangelical Christian church. And you do feel that that is there now. When did when did that shift for you? Well, yeah, I can remember very clearly. Um, I started teaching in the Christian school right around 1979 or 80. And so it was an election year with, you know, Ronald Reagan was coming to power. And and I remember talking to colleagues. Reagan versus Carter. Yeah, Reagan versus Carter. And I had actually, my, my first election I voted in was 1976. I voted for Carter. And and part of the reason was is he, he was an evangelical. Uh, taught Sunday school and, you know. Still yeah, does. Great. Yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. I thought he was the right guy to vote for. But then we were talking in the, to my colleagues in the teacher's lounge, and one of the teachers said, yeah, you know, every Christian has to vote for Ronald Reagan because he's the conservative. And I, I mean, that was a shock to my whole system because I had never thought about being a Christian in those terms before of having to be a conservative <laughs> to, to, to get my bona fides for being an evangelical. But that that was the beginning of that shift. And and I think it had been around before that. I just hadn't been that involved in, in that more conservative element. Uh, but it really built, and I was getting more and more uncomfortable through the years, even though I, I, I still had to teach from that perspective a lot of the time. I tried to temper my teaching with, yeah, let me kind of share another side to this event or to this issue. Uh, and so without being too dogmatic, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, but the, from the 80s on, evangelical Christianity was on a, a what I would consider a one-way track uh, toward becoming a more political movement than it is anything uh, religious. And I think that's kind of where we are today, even more so. Um, 
you, uh, in the book, you share a message that was written and posted on Facebook by your daughter, um, some thoughts about um, this was when marriage equality passed in Iowa, and she was participating in a Pride event, and there were people yelling at the, the people who were celebrating Pride. There were people yelling. There were children throwing stones at them, and, and she talks about a, a really transformative moment where one of the members of the LGBTQ community that she was part of spoke with with the young people who were throwing stones and, and really had a wonderful personal interaction where they related to each other, human to human. And it's a wonderful story to share. But um, so your daughter is part of the LGBTQ community? Well, she's a she's an ally. Okay. Let me put right. it that way. And uh, she is just ter- terrific. Uh, she stands up for for the underdog all the time, and I really love that about her. Uh, but her, her her activity or her uh, work in that regard really spoke to me because coming out of an evangelical tradition, you know, accepting gay marriage was not part of that ideology at all. And, and so um, one of the changes I went through was in as my faith began to be redefined or, or reimagined, uh, it began to change how I view all of those kinds of social relationships, social justice issues. Mm-hmm. So I have a whole section on racial justice, for instance. But but that was one. And uh, uh, I, I, I thank my daughter for being part of that change because she sort of helped me see that. And uh, she was a bit ahead of me on that. So, so that was that was a part of your personal evolution. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. Yeah, and you you have swung, I guess, politically in another direction, where a lot of your book is about social justice issues. And I know that you have been very involved in an anti racism movement in Washington, Iowa. Tell me what changed for you that made you feel so strongly about being anti-racist and and helping to organize your community around that. Yeah, that's really important to me. Uh, it, it, it goes back to my reformulation of faith. So I'll start with that for just a minute. Yeah. So when I was an evangelical, I, we used to define our faith by what we believe, set of beliefs, doctrines, uh, faith statements. It's all about what you believe up here. And as I began to change in terms of how I see faith, I sort of made a distinction between faith as belief and faith as being or who I am as a human being. And when I began to separate faith from belief, I could I could put away earlier dichotomies, such as being non-racist. I was always non-racist. I would, you know, even as a young Christian, I mean, and we were involved in civil rights movement, you know, at mm-hmm. that, in, in those early days, because we believed that Jesus loved and accepted everyone. But <laughs> being a non-racist is not necessarily the same as being anti-racist. So it was when my faith, when I redefined my faith as connecting, as a connection, so it's no longer about what I believe, it's about what I'm connected to. And I'm connected to people. And when I began to really connect, and and teaching history helped me with this, because understanding black history uh, and knowing the truth about that 
and you begin to connect with that on a human level, you begin to see the legacy of it. You begin to see the systemic nature of it. And within the evangelical movement, that was not – it was seen as a personal sin, racism. It wasn't seen as a systemic thing. It was seen as personal sin. You can repent and then go on your way and not worry about it, right? Well, that all changed when I began to see that I'm connected to everyone who's oppressed. So if black people are oppressed, then I'm oppressed. If Asian people are oppressed, I'm oppressed. If gay people are oppressed, I'm oppressed. And that helped me develop empathy, I had to put myself in their place because I've never been oppressed. I'm, a, I'm an old white guy, and I've had privilege my whole life, you know. I've never been in those situations. But when I took the time to, to really understand their experience and develop some empathy, the empathy, and it wasn't guilt, by the way. I didn't develop guilt. I developed empathy, which became a springboard for action. So back to your original question, in Washington, uh, we put together a group called Washington for Justice. Uh, all three three years ago, it was in the wake of the George Floyd murder, and we've been working on issues like that for ever since on social justice issues. And it's not because we have a huge black community in Washington; we don't. But it's about helping, I think, create connections. So we have Juneteenth celebration and uh, invite all kinds of people of color to our community to perform, to, to share their stories, to, to share their work. And it creates connections. And when people connect with each other, they get empathy, they feel like they want to take action to end the oppression. So that's kind of the, the, the storyline of that um, to, to, to get us where <laughs> we are right now. But it is, for me, very much tied to faith, but not faith as belief. Faith as connections. Who do you imagine as the audience for this book, Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical? You share a lot of your beliefs in the book, and, and you, you go into some of the contradictions that you find in evangelical Christianity. And again, this is the white evangelical church that, that you have been part of. There are different evangelical communities. Um, who who do you imagine as the audience? Well, I start out the book by stating very clearly, I'm not out to change anyone's faith or religion. If people are happy and satisfied in the evangelical church, they should I'm not telling them they ought to do anything different. But the reality is, uh, the fastest growing religious group in America is a group called the Nuns. And these People. are not Catholic nuns. They're not Catholic nuns. It's N-O-N-E-S. And I would put myself in that category. Now, they may be agnostic, they may be atheist, or they may just be people still interested in spirituality, but they're not affiliated with any particular church. That's the fastest growing group. And what I found is that my book is resonating with that kind of that group. So I get comments constantly on email or the review site for my book, of people who say, this is my story. I, I've lived that. I understand what you're saying. And I needed to know that someone else is going through it too. So I think that's really the audience. It's for people who really are going through that change, that journey, because they want to. They need to. So, uh, yeah, I'm not out to change anybody's mind, uh, but I am out to be a, a friend on the journey 
for anyone that's going down that road. It's interesting that you say you're not out to change anybody's mind because, I mean, you do uh, you do share information that you've gained through all of your learning and uh, connection and reading. It does sound persuasive. You're really not out to change anybody's mind? Well, I say at the end of the book, I hope you enjoyed the journey through my own mind. I think maybe I w- I'm trying to convince myself more than anyone. Yeah. And it's it's more like this is my manifesto. It's what I believe, and and yeah, I'm 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 passionate, and 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 particularly when it comes to political discussion, I'll get I'll get very very passionate and insistent. Now, when when it comes to faith, <clears throat> I think there's so much room for people to just be humble, and say, hey, I don't know the answer. If if somebody asks me, well, if you don't believe in God, like the evangelicals do anymore, what do you believe? I said, well, I'm not sure. That's a good question because I don't have that answer. I can't answer that. Uh, so there's there's two strains there. When we get into the political side, which the book does, mm-hmm. that's probably going to come off sounding a little more, this is the way I see it and I think As I'm an right. advocate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when we talk about faith and, and uh, those kinds of things, it's going to be – I'm not so sure, but this is the way I see it. It's interesting to talk about not knowing because that's that's one of the tenets of the evangelical Christian church is that certainty, yeah. knowing, and and looking at the Bible in in a very literal sense. Do you ever miss that 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 sense of knowing? No, not at all. I uh, now at first when you when you begin to make that break, it's kind of like a tether. You have, you got the Bible as the authoritative word of God, and you got certainty. You got your statement of faith, and this is what we believe. And you're hanging on to that for dear life. And if anyone challenges that, you got to fight back. You know, so letting go of that at first is kind of difficult. But on the other end of it, when you let go, it is so freeing. I don't have to fight to defend the Bible anymore. It's not my job. I, I don't need to do that. I don't need to go around telling people how to live their lives anymore. You know, like we, I, used, I call it in the book, we used to hand out behavior citations with a Bible verse on it, you know. Yeah. Here's how you're supposed to act. Um, none of that is, is really important to me anymore. And, and I'm really happy with ambiguity and uncertainty spiritually. And when you can get to that place where you're happy with ambiguity, uncertainty. It's very freeing. Daniel Henderson, stay with us. Okay. I'm talking with Daniel Henderson. He is author of Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. He'll be at the Washington Library in Washington, Iowa on Saturday as part of Washington Author Fest, reading at 1 p.m. He'll be at Beaverdale Books on November 12th at 2.30 p.m. in Des Moines, of course. Coming up in just a moment, Robert Cargill, University of Iowa professor of classics and religious studies, will join the conversation. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, I've been talking with Daniel Henderson. He's the author of Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. He lives in Washington, Iowa. And we've been talking about his personal faith journey and his experiences in the Evangelical Christian Church. And I want to broaden the conversation a little bit now. Robert Cargill is here with us. He is uh, the author of Cities That Built the Bible and a professor of classics and religious studies at the University of Iowa. Bob, welcome back. Back to the show. Charity, it's good to be back. And uh, when uh, I was reading about Dan's experience, I thought, well, Bob told me a pretty similar story. This does does have some parallels to your own journey. You grew up in the evangelical church, right? Yeah, I grew up in in a in a very con- in the churches of Christ, and so anybody who's familiar with the churches of Christ know that we we viewed evangelicals as too liberal, right? We were we were very conservative. And, um, you know, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it was, you know, a magnet that we had on the fridge, right? It's, it's just, you know, you have to do what the Bible says. And, and so I was, when I went to Pepperdine to actually to go, you know, I was a pre-med student undergrad, but when I, when I decided to go to Pepperdine, I was warned, you know, be careful the thoughts of men, you know, be careful when, if, you know, you should go to one of these really conservative Bible schools Pepperdine, even though it was a Church of Christ University, right? Pepperdine, where Ken Starr was the law school dean, you know, it's a, it's every conservative law school justice, you know, Supreme Court justice goes there. Um, that was considered too liberal, and so when I went there, they said, "Be careful." And and but of course, I went there and got my my MDiv. Uh, but I was that one who was educated in science as an undergrad and and just asked a lot of questions. And sometimes when I asked, you know, this story looks a little different from this story in the Bible, just have faith, just have faith. And I, I'm not, my mind's not wired that way. And I kept asking questions. And that's not something that you're supposed to do, right? So what, was there a moment that you experienced that that made you realize that you needed to break with the, the church tradition of your past? No, I get this. I, I, I've answered this question a couple of times. You know, everybody always says, you know, wh- what was the trauma that made you leave the church? You know, uh, was there a breakup or was there a, was there something that happened? And it wasn't. You know, they, people want to blame. People that are still in the church often look at me uh, and they say, you know, what was that? You know, you just had something bad happen. And if only you could, you know, overcome this, right? That wasn't it. It was, you know, I had many, many years of education to, to think through this, to, to basically to learn my way through it. And the more I learned, the more I realized, wait a minute, um, Christianity growing out of Judaism uh, is just like many of the other religions that we study. By the way, evangelicals look at these other religions and they say, well, that's not true. Look, you can see the evolution where these religions came from. They just don't want to do that to their own tradition, right? Their own tradition, you know, Christ founded it and this is the one true faith and everything else they're happy to look at from a, from a critical aspect. And so I just applied that same critical methodology to my own uh, religious tradition with, with an honest lens, with the same lens that we were using to look at everything else. Uh, and, you know, the same scientific method that I used with everything else looked at that from my own critical standpoint. And once I was honest, and I, that was the, hard, the hardest part, was just to, to be honest and consistent. And I used, you know, the big fancy word is a hermeneutic, right? Once I read the Bible with consistency, the way that we, we read other religious texts, then I kept saying, 
ah, this, this, I don't want to believe this, but man, the evidence sure is stacking up that maybe Christianity developed in the same way that these other religions developed. In coming to that realization yeah. and deciding that you would leave the church mm-hmm. of your childhood, mm-hmm. I mean, the the church community that you were part of was very strong. Yeah. What was that like to to break with that community? That's the that was probably the hardest part, right? Um, I I had you know I was I was at Pepperdine basically there on fellowship to to be groomed right to to be taught to be a a leader in the church right to I w- and I wasn't going to be a missionary I wasn't going to be a pastor right I was going to be a a, a scholar. Um, and to then decide to keep asking these questions, to keep doing critical theory, um, to, to decide, you know, I, I'm not sure if I, I believe this anymore. And then to marry a youth pastor, right? My wife, Roslyn, uh, is a, is a youth minister and to, and for us to do this together, the hardest part was I, I was raised from a child to have this, this community of faith and to, to realize that probably most of that community of faith was going to then say, well, if you're not one of us, we don't want to be part of you. Right. Um, to know that when I wrote against uh, Prop 8, Prop 8, I was in California at the time, and when I wrote this public piece saying, you know, it's okay to be a Christian and to, to, to embrace uh, same-sex marriage, knowing that 70% of my job prospects as a, as a professor in religious studies were going to reject me, and they did. Um, except for the University of Iowa, by the way. Uh, thank God for the University of Iowa. To know that, you know, because when, you, when you're raised in conservative religious traditions, it's not just a belief. It's your identity. Right. Uh, and I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure Daniel has, has discovered this as well. It's your identity. And so walking away, it's not just, you know, something like uh, that you believe you're rooting for the, for the Cubs and then you decide, eh, I don't, the Cubs suck and I don't want to – I don't want to root for the Cardinals. Yeah, I would root right? for somebody else. It's, this is your identity. So you're not just leaving something that you, that you, that you want to change your mind on. You're going to lose your community and – that was the hardest part, especially the people closest to you. You know, oftentimes it's your parents, it's your relatives. It's uh, what I discovered was a lot of the people within my faith community had been asking a lot of these same questions, and these guys would privately message me and say, "Hey, I admire your courage. I have these same questions. Can you can you talk to me? Would you talk to me, or would you talk to my children? They're struggling with LGBTQ issues as well." You know, and and so I became a person who very private, and I respected that privacy. I, I didn't out them. I yeah. didn't, uh, and so I I found a niche as someone who basically helped people privately uh, make that not a transition, but as a counselor to people who were also struggling with issues of faith. Which Dan, it sounds like you have suddenly become that person for a lot of people as well. Yeah, it's interesting how uh, how much people will reach out, and and a lot of times it is it is quietly, yeah. But they have those questions and they have doubts, and to me that's that's a great starting point, yeah. is 
yeah, let's talk about the doubts. Well, and I think, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are many beautiful things about that community that make it difficult to leave, right? I mean, this is where your friends are, your, possibly your spouse, possibly, I mean, your parents. This is where your support community has been. This is where a lot of your social life has been. So the, the, the good, I mean, Dan, is that what, part of what kept you in this community for so long, even after those doubts grew. Yeah, I think it was. It was It was a lifestyle. It was people that you knew. Uh, and there was support there. I, I would say this, though. There was support to a certain, <laughs> to a certain ending point, mm. because if you did come out in favor of gay rights or gay marriage, or, or other, quote, questionable ideas, uh, you, you could get shunned in a hurry. The biggest one was doubting the authority of the Bible. And that one would put you on a one-way track very quickly <laughs> to, to being what, what you might call uh, dismembership. Uh, that one was uncompromising. So there were limits, but, but it was a support system uh, within that ideology. Right. Yeah. Now, Dan, you and I talked earlier about you seeing this shift in the, the politics of the evangelical Christian church, and, and um, you've both observed this over, especially over the last decade, where we have seen a, a movement not just further to the right in the evangelical Christian church, but um, the embracing of Donald Trump, who himself was not an evangelical Christian, um, but with this idea that uh, this is is an absolute necessity to further the beliefs of the evangelical Christian church. I mean, Bob, can you give me some of your, your thoughts as you have seen that political movement harden and change? Right. So, you know, I, I, I recognize the same thing, right? As my, as my beliefs, as my faith, you know, they would say you're questioning your faith. There were always people willing to talk to me, you know, within the community that were trying to bring me back. But as soon as I came out in support of LGBTQ rights or as soon as I, you know, I was raised in a very red part of California. You know, you do what you're, what you're raised with. As soon as I shifted towards the Democratic Party or as soon as I, you know, I didn't embrace – uh, uh, republicanism, um, and that's back when Republicans were, you know, or what we now consider moderate Republicans. Um, that's when I was written off, mm. right? It was the politics behind it. It was the power, and that's when I began to question. Wait a minute, this isn't about faith as much as as it is about power, and I began to to examine it from that standpoint, and I realized that. This whole, this whole talk about a Christian nation, which we weren't founded as a Christian nation. I lecture about this all the time. The founders were very clear about this, right? We're, we're, we're a nation built, founded by Christians, but not a Christian nation. There were lots of Christians that founded this place, but they were very clear that it's not a, a Christian nation. Right. The freedom of religion is Correct. Right. foundational. You can't, you can't be prosecuted for your faith, right? right. But you get to believe whatever you want. Um, as that shifted, starting in the 50s, but then especially in the late 70s and the 80s, and then when we see it now, as these nuns, I, I think Dan uh, Henderson talked about these, the growth of the nuns, the democratization of knowledge with the growth of the internet, 
as people are now embracing science and, and starting to realize that you can go to people for information other than just your parents and your pastor, right? That there's other places of, of knowledge that you see this, this uh, dichotomy. You, you see this bifurcation where, well, we have to double down on what it is we believe. And so it has to be true and, and we lose that middle ground. Instead of embracing the middle, the people who are losing power, this traditionally privileged group that had these positions of power are now just doubling down. You have to and, – and so the more the right, the religious right, the, the, the fundamentalist, let's just call them what it is, this reading of the Bible, right? It, it, it's inerrant. It's infallible. You have to read it this way. They go farther, farther to the right and unfortunately, the left goes farther to the left in response and what we lose – is the middle, both on the left and the right. We lose this middle ground. And what I'm, what I'm really fighting for is this middle, that a, a scholar, at least from the, a, an academic standpoint, is the critical method should look at the text, the Bible, uh, politically, you know, and try to, to say, okay, does the far right or the far left own the truth? Or can we please get back to the center ground from a critical standpoint can we can we look at the text and see where this faith comes from and maybe return to what used to work pretty well in this country and that is people of faith working together and um, I can I can live next door and work with and do business with people who believe something completely different than I do and that's fine it, we it used to work pretty well we only have a couple of minutes left, and if you can tell me how to get back to that, Bob, right, yeah, <laughs> you get no, to I'm come back and you can tell us tell us how we return to to uh, um, something that is less divided than we are right now. But um, with only about three minutes left, I mean, this is a this is a moment in time that is so fraught. And I mean, Dan, you're you're writing about your personal faith journey. You are connecting with people. Are you finding that what Bob was just saying, that that really that sadness that this middle ground is lost, is that something that you're hearing from others? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that resonates a lot. Uh, I think I think uh, the extremes have become so extreme that uh, it's it's a zero sum game uh, for a lot of people. Um uh, particularly on the religious right, which is why they can even justify, for instance, things like January 6th. Um, they were the, – a lot of Christian nationalists were involved in that. There were signs all over the place in that riot about, you know, uh, Trump is my president and, and, and I love Jesus. I mean, all in the same – and so – it, it's about zero. There can be no compromise once once you get to a place, particularly in a political realm, where you can't compromise with anybody. Your democracy is at a very very weak state, uh, aside from faith. But the democracy is at a very and, and the more that religious belief and ideology permeates that that uh, the the pol the uh, political realm, uh, the less people are able to compromise because it's, you know, they say, well, this is what God wants. I can't compromise what God wants. 
as if they really know. Um, so, yeah, we're we're in a very very uh, difficult spot right now, and and I, I I would join with Bob and say, hey, let's let's come back to some sort of credible, reasonable, loving middle where we can really work together. I like that idea. Well, you guys both come up with that plan. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll talk a great deal more about it, but I. Dan, thank you so much for for sharing your journey and being so vulnerable and open. I, I am sure that this is something a lot of people can relate to deeply. Yeah, thank you for having me. Daniel Henderson is the author of Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. And Bob Cargill, thank you so much for being here today. And I'm sure this, these are conversations you probably have with your students a lot as well. We, we talk about this very subject at the, at the end of my course, and I think we need to, to bring this book on board and, and read it for the class. Well, Bob Cargill, thanks a lot. Bob Cargill is the author of Cities That Built the Bible. He's a professor of classics and religious studies at the University of Iowa. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Our intern is Natalie Dunlap, and we also get help frequently from Tony Sarabia. You can get in touch with us anytime. Send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org, and please subscribe to our podcast. Anywhere you get your podcasts, just search for Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.